If you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 11 today as we're continuing to walk through the book of Romans together. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can take one of the black Bibles that's on the end of the pew and you can turn to page 946 and we'll be from there on to page 947. Let's read together the text that we have come to next in the Word of God, Romans 11 verses 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. A lot of times when somebody first comes to faith in Jesus, they can't imagine that anybody else would not come to faith in Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling before. When you first understand the glory of Christ, the the reality of our sin and the reality that Jesus has come for sinners out of love, died on the cross for our sins risen from the dead, is the Lord to be loved and followed in faith? When, when, you, when you come to understand that, it, it, it's so, so normal to, to just start telling people. And I, I love just the zeal that's, that's often there in brand new believers to, to, to just want to tell. And often with the expectation, well, it, it must just be that people have never heard this before, because if they just heard this, then, then they would understand, and they would come to Christ. And, and sometimes there's just this, this feeling, what in the world is going on? Why, why are people not coming to Jesus when he's Jesus? And when he's done what he's done, and, and we have this eternal life and this eternal kingdom that's just offered to us free of charge, why are people not receiving the free gift of salvation. So you, you can look around at the world sometimes and have that, that thought, why are people just not getting it? Why are they not just all flocking to Jesus? And then sometimes, it's not just in the world, but sometimes it's even this feeling within churches of how can it be that there are those who not just have heard of Jesus, but maybe even were, were brought up hearing about Jesus all the time and with their Bibles open and in Sunday school and in the worship services and in all the other programs and and even with parents in their homes who would open up the scriptures. And, And yet, how could it be that they would not receive Jesus as Lord? Now, I do want to encourage you parents. It does seem to be the normal pattern in scripture. It does seem to be expected that as we share the gospel with our children, that, that the most common thing that we can expect is that they will one day get it, that God loves to save children through being in Christian families, and yet we also all know heartbreaking situations where it hasn't happened. And, and there can be this feeling, well, what, why in the world did it not happen? Or not even just with individuals, but with whole churches, where there are churches, even within our own community, I, I won't name any names of churches right now, but 
There are churches even within our own community that have a rich, rich history of gospel preaching, and yet now are far from it. You can say, how could it be that they had all of that advantage, and yet now they're so, it's just as though their heart is hard. As I say that, it's not just churches in New Jersey where you can sometimes see that, but you may notice that the book of the Bible that we're open to is called Romans. This was written, this is a letter written to the church in Rome. And, and you, you, you take that, and then you compare it to what happened with the church in Rome 1,500 years later at the Council of Trent, where the church in Rome officially made a declaration that anyone who believes the gospel that's preached in Paul's letter to the church at Rome is anathema. You say, how could that be? How could that church have, has, have veered so far? How could hearts have gotten so hard to Christ and to the gospel? And in Israel, that's what Paul is dealing with here as we come to this passage. How could it be that within the Jewish people, within the nation of Israel that God had established in the Old Testament, that he'd brought out of Egypt, that he'd made these covenants covenants with, these, these covenant promises that he had delivered his word to, given his prophets to, that he had raised up the promised Messiah through this people. How could it be that so, so many would just look at Jesus when he'd come? The Messiah that they had been waiting for. Not just Messiah, but God, the very God that they had been claiming to follow for so long when he came to them in the flesh, that they looked and said, no thank you. How is that possible? How are any of these things possible, whether it's the unbelieving world or the unbelieving in a church or the unbelieving among Israel? Well, the, the problem is a hard heart. The problem is a hard heart, and that's what this passage is describing to us, what that hard heart looks like, and calling us not to have a hard heart. As I, as I say this, we, it would be very, very easy to say, well, this is about, you know, as you look at the specific context of the passage, well, this is about those who are within the synagogues who just won't see Jesus as Savior and just say, well, it's those people over there. Or it's those unbelievers over there. It's, it's this, it's that. And we have to be reminded that the Bible gives us this warning in Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews 3, 7, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he explains, he says, Take care then, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So as we read this today, the, the call of Scripture is both to understand what's going on with those who will not believe, and also the call of Scripture is for us to examine ourselves and to say, is there any hardness of heart creeping in, and how can I ask for God's grace to soften my heart? So with that in mind, let's look at what, what we're calling today the anatomy of a hard heart, as it's described here in Romans 11, starting in verse 7. If you want to be able to make sense of what we're talking about today and to follow along a little bit better, I hope you'll have your Bible open. Keep your Bible open, and it might also help to be looking at the outline on the back of the bulletin as we go along as well. So let's see first what he describes in verse 7, election and hard hearts. He says, what then? 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So he says, Israel failed to obtain it. That's sort of giving a a generalized statement. In general, he's saying Israel, the Jewish people, have not obtained what they were seeking. But then he clarifies a little bit, and he says, the elect obtained it. So he's saying there there is a remnant who obtained whatever this thing was that they were seeking. but, But in general, the rest were hardened. Well, what was it that Israel was seeking? He's already described that back in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. He said, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, the stumbling stone, which is Christ. What were they pursuing? Well, he's talking here about the pursuit of being right with God. The pursuit of being judged by God to be a righteous person who could enter eternal life. That's, that's kind of the most basic thing that we're talking about. But he says, why did they not reach that? Well, he says it's because they were pursuing it as though it were by works. Now, I, I'm not going to go back and re-preach my whole sermon on Romans 9, 31 and 32 here, although I want to. But what he's talking about, he's he's saying, look, the way to be right with God is not by being good. You can't be good enough. No matter how many good things, in fact, if you started today and you obeyed every law that God has for all time and did every good thing, which, by the way, you can't do, but if you did do that, you would still have the reality that you've already broken God's law in some way, maybe in great big ways that you're very aware of, Or maybe in other ways that you have never cared about because your conscience has been seared by sin. But in any way that you have broken God's law, that you haven't done what God has said to do, or that you have done what God has said not to do, whether it's in your actions, or whether it's in your words, or even deep down in the thoughts and feelings of your heart, God has seen it. And he, the righteous lawgiver, the righteous judge, knows that you are a criminal in his court. You are a lawbreaker. And so Israel, he says, was trying to obtain this righteousness by works, and it didn't work because the only way we can be right with God is by faith. That's what he's getting across all the way up through the book of Romans up to this point. The only way to be right with God is not by what you can do, It is not by your doing of the good rules. The only way you can be right with God is by what has been done for you in the person of Jesus. And by by through through the mechanism, you might say, of believing upon him rather than believing upon yourself and your goodness. But he says Israel failed to obtain it. But he does say, wait a second, the elect obtained it. He's just talked about that in the verses that came before this. And in Romans 11, he says that there is this remnant, this remnant, as he says in verse 5, a remnant at the present time that is chosen by grace. So he's saying, look, not all of Israel has been rejected by God. God has kept for himself a righteous remnant who are righteous by faith in Jesus. And Paul put his own self forward as exhibit A about this. He says, look at me. 
I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and look, God has called me to himself. God chose me. God sent Jesus to meet me and to turn my heart around and open my eyes so that I would come to him in faith and know that the way to be a true Israelite is not by rejecting Jesus, but by embracing him as my great prophet, priest, and king, my God who's come in the flesh, my Savior. So he puts himself forward as the exhibit of that, but he says here in verse 6 that there is the elect of God that obtained it. He's saying, what does that word elect mean? It means chosen. It means that God has chosen for himself from before all eternity who it is that he's going to save whether it's from among the Israelites or from among anyone else. But he said, the elect obtained it, the elect have come to faith in Jesus. By the way, that tells you right there, here's how you know that you're elect. How do you know that you're elect? Well, you've come to faith in Jesus. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father, but I will raise him up on the last day. If you've come to Jesus, it's because God has been gracious to you. A remnant chosen by grace in verse 5, and here in verse 7, the elect who obtained it. But then he moves on to the, the issue that is the big issue of this passage, which is this, the rest were hardened. The rest were hardened. So there's the elect remnant who came to faith in Jesus, and then there is the rest and in, in, in fact, at Paul's time, and even in our time, speaking of the ethnically Jewish people, the majority, and we hope and pray that one day that will change, but, but what he's talking about here is saying the rest were hardened, that there's something that happened to their hearts. He described this back in Romans 9.18, where he says, so then he has mercy, that's God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is a hard doctrine. It was a hard doctrine when we came to it in Romans 9. It's a hard doctrine now that we've come to it in Romans 11, and it makes us start to wonder if God is evil. Maybe it doesn't make you start to wonder that. That's good. But it raises the question, is God evil? If he chooses who he's going to save and the rest are hardened, isn't that a mean, evil God? Well, I'll just say it right now, no. The answer is no. He is not a mean, evil God. He is a righteous and loving and merciful God, and a God who will by no means clear the guilty, he announced about himself as well. The, the, the amazing thing, you, you just need to know this, okay? So many of the, the problems of wrong thinking not just among the world, but even in the church, because we live in the world and we absorb things from the world's way of thinking that we don't know that we're absorbing. So many of the problems that come up with thinking that maybe God is mean somehow, they arise from this one simple misunderstanding. Here it is. That people are naturally good. You just got to know this. You got to get this in your head. You got to start thinking this. You got to start applying this in different situations. People are not naturally good. People 
are sinners by nature. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have come into the world not as good people who might get stuff wrong sometimes. We have come into the world as enemies of God, as our own statement of faith here at this church puts it, as positively inclined to evil from the beginning. And so when you start to think, well, well, why didn't God just soften every heart? Why didn't God just elect everybody? Why, why didn't, wouldn't it have been more fair for God to do that? Then what you're, you may not be realizing you're doing is you're, you're starting out with the starting point that everybody deserves eternal life, which is the opposite of the truth. Everybody, let, let me make this personal too, you came into the world bad and you may have come into a family that, that trained you to, to restrain some of that evil. I hope you did. That's part of what families are for. <laughs> but and you, you may have certain things about your life that are orderly and admirable in various ways, but, but you are not naturally good. You are naturally evil. And the things that the world tells you, well, you just need to, to just find who you are and express it, all that. No, no, that's garbage. Find who you are and repent of it. Pray for forgiveness. Because we are not naturally good. We are naturally evil. And when God hardens hearts, he's not going around to good people and saying, I'm going to get you. He is letting people remain in the sin that they were born in. He is letting vultures remain vultures. He, he, he is, is let, let me just put it this way. There is never going to be a time in eternity when we turn around and we say, God was evil in what he did. We, we will never look back and we will never say, God should not have let that person be condemned. God should not have done what he did. God is just. God is right. Everything that God does is good. Everything. And when, when it talks here about the, the rest were hardened, the rest were hardened, you kind of wonder, well, what is God doing there, and what are people doing there, and who's doing the hardening? And sometimes the Bible says that, that people harden their own hearts, and sometimes the Bible uses the language that God hardens people's hearts, and I think that's actually what's meant here. And then sometimes it switches back and forth almost interchangeably about the exact same person like it does with Pharaoh throughout the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. Where, where, where in God's word, it will just seamlessly switch between saying throughout the plagues, well, then Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. And then saying, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and so Pharaoh would not let the people go. And, and it seems like it's just the same thing. Well, ultimately, God is sovereign over that. Ultimately, God is sovereign over all things, and ultimately, God is in no way responsible for people's evil the evil and hardness of their hearts. Both of those things are true. God is sovereign over it, and God is in no way responsible for anyone's evil. Here's, here's what Robert Haldane said about it. I, just, I love the way that he put this. He says, Their sins, which are the cause of their destruction, are their own. 
while the salvation of those whom God chooses and calls to himself is his gift. As to those who are finally condemned, he determines to abandon them to their depraved inclinations and hardens them in their rebellion against him. When men are saved, they are saved by the sovereign grace of God, and when they perish, it is by the appointment of God, as Jude 4 says, through their own fault. I think that's a pretty good way to sum this up. Did they harden their own hearts? Yes. Did God harden their hearts? Yes. But how did he do it? He left them in the hardness of their hearts that they were already in. Left them in their sin. But then he goes on and he describes what that looks like. He describes what, what exactly does a hard heart look like. And so we get to verse 8 where we see this anatomy. These different parts, what does a hard heart look like? And as he gets here, he says, as it is written. And if you're going to look up what verse he's quoting, well, he's quoting two verses from two different parts of Scripture. And he's kind of mashing them together. And, and he can do that, and we can do that. It's kind of like if, 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 you're, if you've been soaking in the Bible for a while, you start to understand that different parts are kind of communicating the same thing, even from the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, you know, so, sometimes when I'm, when I'm talking about how people need a new heart, which I'm going to tell you at the end of the sermon, you need a new heart, I'll quote, I'll quote from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says that he will give them a new heart. He will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And then I'll quote also from John 3, where, where Jesus describes that passage and says, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And I'll, I'll kind of squish them together because they're teaching the same thing. And that's what Paul's doing here too. And he's not pretending like there's a verse that goes exactly like this. He's consciously squishing together two verses. One of them is from Deuteronomy 29.4, and the other one is from Isaiah 29.10. And they're teaching the same thing. One of them teaching it from the Torah, the original five books of the Bible. One of them teaching it from the prophets. And then he's going to go on and show a verse from the Psalms in a minute too. And he's, he's kind of, he, he, Paul does this over and over. He, he'll, he'll say, I'm not teaching you anything new because you can see this all over the Old Testament. Look back here in how God dealt with Moses. Look here in the prophets. Look here in the Psalms. And that's what he's doing here. But let's look and see specifically. What is he talking about? Well, he says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So you've got the spirit, the eyes, and the ears. These three ways that he's describing what a hard heart looks like, what the anatomy of a hard heart is. You, you see those things put together in a few different places in the Bible. Isaiah 6 is one of them where, as, as Rick read for us at the beginning of the service, that Isaiah was charged by God to preach to the people and that as he preached, the hearts of the people would grow dull and their ears would grow heavy and their eyes would be blinded. Not because he was preaching the wrong thing, he was preaching the word of God, but God just told him up front, this is what's going to happen with your preaching, Isaiah. It's a little discouraging. <laughs> but you see these repeated multiple places. You've got this 
spirit of stupor in the heart. You've got these eyes that won't see, these ears that won't hear. So let's, let's think about that, this spirit of stupor. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of like drunkenness. It's kind of like being really, really sleepy. It's kind of like anything else where somebody is totally out of it. It's a little bit like those, those videos that are on the Internet where somebody has been in, uh, in, put under by the dentist and then they start to come out. And you see them, when you're coming out of anesthesia, you, you're convinced that you have everything all together, that you're totally clear thinking, that you have new insights into the mysteries of the universe. But what do you actually have? A spirit of stupor. And he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. And he says, here's what that looks like. Well, it's, it's, it's coming to the things of the Lord, and your mind just is dumb about it. <laughs> you, you can't wake up to it. You can't put your, your thoughts around it. This is part of what the effects of sin are on our hearts. This is, this is what's called the noetic effects of the fall. We don't, we don't know things right. It goes into a lot of other things as well, but it's part of, of what we call original sin or total depravity is that, f- that, that we come into the world dunked in sin, and that sin has made us have this sloppy drunkenness when it comes to the things of the Lord where we just don't get it. We ought to get it, but the sin in our hearts makes us not get it until God comes and does something about that. But he says God gave them a spirit of stupor. Now, believers in Jesus, don't slip into a spirit of stupor. If God has woken you up to know Christ and to understand the gospel, then listen to the things that the Bible says as instructions for you to avoid, to be on guard against having a hard heart that would have a spirit of stupor. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So as we consider the, the spirit of stupor, we need to know, okay, that is the natural state of man in his sin, but we also need to know, let's be on guard. Let's be sober-minded. Let's be watchful. As he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Guys, we got to keep our minds sharp to the things of the Lord we got to stay awake. we got to do what Jesus told the disciples in the garden. Stay awake and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Watch and pray. Don't coast is another way to put this. When we start to coast, when we start to think, I got it, I'm good, I don't have to carefully think about Scripture today, I don't have to thoughtfully pray I don't have to consider 
what temptations might come at me today. I don't have to consider how I should be serving the people that God has put in my life. I don't have to consider how I should be serving God. When we just decide, well, I'm going to coast today, I've got this, then what you're doing is you're saying to yourself, well, I won't watch and pray. I'm going to just, I'm going to just see what happens. And the Bible says, well, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Someone who's not going to be sober-minded, someone who's not going to be watchful, somebody who toys with a spirit of stupor. So don't do that, but also know that it's normal and natural for those who are lost in their sins to just not get it because they are lost in a spirit of stupor. Pray that God would do something about that if you want people to believe. He has to do it. A spirit of stupor. The second thing he says is eyes that would not see. Well, what what is eyes that would not see? Well, it's not being able to look and see right what is in front of your face. It comes, comes in a few different ways. One is blindness to God's glory in creation. It says in Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's talking there about how everybody, everybody in the world ought to be able to look around at what God has created and to see that God is the creator. And, and from that, everybody is called and responsible for worshiping him. But that's not what the natural sinful heart does. Instead, the natural sinful heart becomes blind to those things and their foolish hearts are darkened. That's the state we were in before Jesus came and saved us. There's blindness to God's glory in creation. There's, there's blindness to sin. Eyes that are closed to sin. This is usually a willful closing of the eyes to sin. This is what Je- Jesus described in John 3. After he said, you must be born again, he says, here's the reason why people want to remain in their sin. They want to stay in the darkness. They don't want to come into the light. They don't want to see. They don't want to be seen. They want their sin to remain in the darkness. They want to be blind to it. They want God to be blind to it, even though he's not. They want others to be blind to it. They don't want to see that they are sinners who will face a holy God at the judgment. There's a blindness in that way. There's a blindness, thirdly, to the signs of the times, as Jesus put it. He came, and in his teaching, he said, "Open." <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but look at the signs of the times. You're, you're able to look at the clouds and see when it's going to rain. You're, you're able to look at the trees and see when the seasons are changing. Look at the signs of the times. Well, what does that mean? I don't think Jesus is teaching there that we need to get out a newspaper and, and be certain of exactly who the Antichrist is who's rising up in Central Asia or something like that. I I think what he means is look at the brokenness of the world that you're in the middle of and see that it is showing you that you need to have your hope in a kingdom that is not of this world. Look. Look and see. You need King Jesus. You need to be someone who has your citizenship in heaven Look at the signs of the time. Don't be blind to it. But all of this summing up, and the the thing that he's mainly talking about, the main blindness that he's talking about here, is blindness to the glory of Christ. 
blindness to the person of Jesus as our great prophet, priest, and king, and God. Just remember that when Jesus came in the flesh, he stood in front of people, he did miracles, he taught with authority that no one had ever heard, he went and he died publicly, he rose from the dead publicly, and even in the middle of that, even after he was raised from the dead, it was these religious leaders, the Pharisees, who said to the soldiers, here's some money, go and spread the lie that his body was stolen. They literally knew that he rose from the dead, but they absolutely would not open their eyes to his glory. They wouldn't do it. Here's what Jesus said when he stood face to face with them, and this was actually right after he had healed a man who had been born blind. And he's, he's done this, and he's standing there in front of the, the very same people who another time in his ministry said, Lord, show us a sign, and we'll believe in you. Well, they've got signs aplenty. I don't say aplenty in regular life. They've got a lot of signs. Maybe I do. Maybe I say that more in regular life than I do from the pulpit. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They had all kinds of signs. And they had this sign right in front of them. Jesus has just healed a man born blind. And they will not believe in him. And here's what Jesus says. He says, For judgment I came into this world. This is John 9, 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Do you hear the pride in that statement? Don't you understand that we're in charge of the religion here? Are you calling us blind? Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Wow. Even those who claim to see, what is it that they were blind to? They were blind to the glory of Christ. Don't be blind to the glory of Christ. He, he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one through whom you exist. He, he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who started it all and the one who is the point of it all. And he has come in the flesh and given himself as a ransom for many to save us from our sins. Don't be blind to him. Open your eyes to see the glory of Jesus. Open your eyes. But not just spirits of stupor, not just eyes that would not see, but ears that would not hear, he says, back in Romans 7. Or excuse me, Romans 11. Verse, verse 8, ears that would not hear down to this very day. Well, what, what does that look like? It looks like hearing the word of God, but not hearing the word of God. It's, it's like having the Bible open and read to you, or even reading the Bible yourself, or having the Bible preached and explained to you and applied to you, and yet it just goes in one ear and out the other. What an incredibly sad state of being that is. To just be dull to the Word of God. To just say, in all these things, 
Well, what is it? As it says in the Old Testament in one place, well, it's, it's like precept upon precept, line upon line, dull. I already know what it says. It says be good. It says don't be bad. It says a lot of other things, but meh. Ears that would not hear. That is a hard heart. A, a, a heart that does not care about the Word of God. A heart that is not broken over having not picked up its Bible today. Guys, don't close your ears to the Word of God. But as, as this plays out, the sad state of not hearing, there's two main ways that this usually plays out, Okay. To, to those who, who just sort of maybe sort of like superficially affirm, yeah, the Bible's good, but, but just let it go in one ear and out the other. Two ways. One is the way of the Pharisees, and one is the way of the Libertines. You might call these legalism or license. Legalism, the way of the Pharisees, when it hears the Scriptures, it will not hear because the attitude of the heart is, this doesn't apply to me because I'm already good. You hear that? That is the attitude of the Pharisees. This doesn't apply specifically to me because I'm already good. The attitude, on the other hand, of the libertines, not legalism but license, the attitude of wanting to say, I will just continue to live however I feel like because I'm free to do that. A lot of times, that can go together even with a superficial affirmation that the Bible is true. Even with a super affir superficial affirmation that Jesus is the Savior, because there is this feeling that this doesn't apply to me because Jesus will forgive me no matter what I do. I can live however I want because Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, and therefore I'm forgiven, and this next sin that I'm planning, he will let go. It's fine. This doesn't apply to my situation. Do you hear the common thing between both of those? It's ears that won't hear. It's ears that say, this does not apply to me. Whether it's, it doesn't apply to me because I'm already good, or it doesn't apply to me because he'll forgive me for whatever I do. Guys, Open your ears, and not just open your ears to know that this is the case. Open your ears to let this penetrate your heart, to let God's Word penetrate your heart and know that it applies specifically, directly to you. God made you. God sent His Word to you. It applies to you. You are not already good to where this doesn't apply to you anymore. You are not in a position where you can just say, God will forgive me, so this doesn't apply to me. It applies. It applies. These are things that make people look at Jesus and have their hearts and their eyes and their ears closed to the glory of Christ. He says here, that this is all coming in part from, as I said, from, uh, from Isaiah, but also from Deuteronomy 29.4. And Deuteronomy 29.4, really, in the way that it's worded, gives us an explanation of how it is that God gives them these things, where it says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. God gave them eyes that would not see. God gave them ears that would not hear. How did he do it? Deuteronomy 29.4 says, to this day, the Lord has not given you 
a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Do you know how the Lord gives a heart that doesn't understand? Well, it's by not giving a heart that does understand, because your heart does not understand by nature. How does God give a person eyes that don't see? Well, he withholds the eyes that would see. How does God give ears that won't hear? He withholds the ears that will hear. Because do you know what our natural default setting, our standard equipment that we come into this world with is? We come into this world with hearts of stupor, eyes that won't see, ears that won't hear. God has to be the one to give those things if we're going to have them, to give a soft heart, to give an understanding heart, to give seeing eyes, to give hearing ears. Pray that God would do that for those that don't believe. Whether it's people in your family, whether it is people who are growing up in church, and you just assume, well, of course that's going to happen. It doesn't just happen. Pray that God would do it. Whether it is the specific situation that he's talking about here where we long to see more and more and more of the people of ethnic Israel come to embrace the Savior Jesus that he sent. Pray that God would do that. We can pray for that, but also we also ought not to be hard-hearted. We, we ought not to close our eyes, to close our ears. We ought not to have a spirit of stupor. We need to stay awake and alert and pray for God's grace on a daily basis to have hearts that are sensitive to the Scriptures, eyes that would see the glory of Christ, hearts that would embrace Him and love Him and worship Him. One of the things you need to do, just as a Christian, you need to get your Bible out and you need to listen to it. Right. Um, sometimes when, when I will reach out to church members and, and see how they're doing and see how we can, we can pray and, and that sort of thing, um, I'll find out things like, well, this person is struggling a little bit spiritually right now, and I'll ask, well, what have you been reading in your, your Bible lately? And do you know what's almost always the answer when somebody is struggling spiritually? Well, I haven't really been doing that the last few days, but... <laughs> do you see where this is coming from? And I kind of I worry sometimes. If they say the last few days, it might actually be more than that. I mean, one day without the Word of God. You know what the Bible calls a time without the Word of God? It calls it... A famine, a famine of the Word of God. And if, if we're saying, well, God gave them eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, and then we take our Bibles and we say, well, I don't have to be in this today. I'm very busy. Don't do that. Don't close your ears. Don't close your eyes. Do, do you think... Let me ask you this honestly. Think about your week that you've just had. If you had spent additional time with your Bible open and your heart meditating and praying on the words that God put in front of you there, do you think that in this week that you've just lived, 
that you would walk away from it and say, I really regret that I spent that time in my Bible because I was so busy and I could have gotten things done better if I had just put my Bible down and worked harder. You would not think that. Do you think there's ever been a Christian who came to the end of their life lying there contemplating what God had done and what they had done in their lives? A Christian who came to the end of their lives and said, boy, I wish I hadn't spent so much time in the Scriptures. I wish I hadn't spent so much time in prayer. I wish that I had closed my ears a little more so that I could get my nose to the grindstone a little more. Nobody's going to say that. You will never, Christian, you will never, ever regret opening your eyes and your ears to God and to the glory of Christ in this time that you would spend with him in his word. Get your Bible out, open your eyes and open your ears, and you're going to see that you come away from it with more than just a feeling of having checked something off of your spiritual checklist. You're going to come away with a heart that is poured into by the Holy Spirit. You're going to come away strengthened. You're going to come away with the armor of God to do the rest of what God has put in front of you, to serve the people that God puts in your life, to glorify God in being zealous for good works, all kinds of things. I could go on and on and on. Maybe I will. But don't close your eyes and your ears. Get your Bibles out. The third, I say the third, point three. Point three. Blessings turn to curses. Look at verse 9. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. This is part of the judgment. This is part of the hardening of hearts. His blessings turn to curses by these hard hearts. He's quoting from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. And this reminds us of, of what it says in Amos 6, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Or what it says in Ezekiel 3.20, If a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, I lay a stumbling block before him. He shall die. What happens here is he's talking about this table. Let their table become a snare and a trap. And the picture here is of a full banqueting table. Now, a full table to us is actually pretty normal which is an amazing thing in the history of humanity. We should thank God for that, to have a full table. A full table back then, though, it represented these times of wealth and plenty to be able to sit down at a banqueting table and have a feast. He's he's talking here, when he says their table, he's talking about things like wealth. He's talking about things like having a comfortable way of life. He's talking about things like having established institutions that don't need very much tweaking and are doing a good job, all kinds of things set up, ready to go. And he says, let their table become a snare and a trap. What does that mean? It means if your heart is hard toward Christ, if your heart is set on things of this world instead of on Christ, those things of this world are not going to benefit you in eternity. They're going to be a snare to you. They're going to be a trap to you. They're going to be a retribution to you. They're going to stand as evidence against you that even though God has been so, so merciful and gracious in those ways in this life, 
that yet you did not turn to him in faith. Don't let that be the case. This pattern happened over and over in Israel's history. He says in Deuteronomy 6.10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, he says this, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, God is saying, I know the sinful tendencies of man, that when you get set up with things of the world, that it's very easy to say, I don't need God anymore. In that way, sometimes you may not realize it, but it may actually sometimes be a blessing from God to you when you don't have what you wish you had. When you don't have times of plenty. When your retirement account looks terrible. When you don't know how you're going to make the next payment. When you don't know what's going to happen to your body when you don't know if you are about to receive that bad word from that test for cancer that you've just gone through, you may not realize it, but sometimes it is a blessing from God to make us understand that we cannot depend on the things of this world. We can't get comfortable. Those things can become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and even lead to retribution if they would turn our eyes from Christ to turning our eyes to the things of the world. A hard heart will do that. A hard heart will look not to the things of Jesus, but to the things where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He warned that for those who who receive the Word of God in a certain way and affirm that it's true but never actually believe and never bear fruit, he says what's going on in those hearts is that the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and it proves unfruitful. That's Matthew 13, 22. All of this, it comes from a hard heart. It leads to bent backs, it says in verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. He's already said, back up in verse 8, eyes that would not see. And what he says is the result of hard hearts with eyes that will not see is eyes that will be darkened. What does that mean? Hell. Hell is a dark place. If you think to yourself, I know that my friends have gone to hell and I will go there and I will see them, you won't see them. It's a place of darkness. It's called in Jude 3, the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever for the enemies of God. Eyes that will not see the glory of Christ now are eyes that will be cast where they cannot see forever. And he says, bend their backs forever. What he's talking about is the eternal punishment of hell. This this hell is what we all deserve. If we think God is mean for creating hell and for sending people there, go back to that thing I told you earlier. We are not good by nature. 
The remarkable thing is not that some people go to hell. The remarkable thing is that any of us escape it. And it's only by the grace and the blood of Jesus that he paid for us. But this hell, this place of the bending of backs forever, it's eternal torment. It is fire. It is sadness. It is where the worm does not die. It is where the fire is not quenched. And people go there daily in the hardness of their hearts. Don't do that. Don't do that. Come to Jesus. Come to the hope of Jesus. How is it that somebody's going to get away from this hard heart? If you got, if you got a spirit of stupor, eyes that won't see, ears that won't hear, how are you going to get out of that? Are you going to get out of that by your own power? Are you going to escape judgment by your own power? Impossible. Impossible. But here's what God can do. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. When he says that he can remove the heart of stone, he's the one who can remove hard hearts, He's the one who can give us new soft hearts. He's the one who can open our eyes and our ears and our minds to the glory of Jesus, to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, as our hope for all eternity. That's what Jesus was talking about when he says, I say to you, John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So as we think about all of this, the anatomy of a hard heart, just remember God is able to do it, to overcome it. God is the one who was able to do something about a hard heart. Pray that he would. Pray that he would do that in those who don't believe today. And pray that he would, by his grace, guard your heart from its tendency to develop those little calluses of hardness here and there and everywhere and to close your ears. Pray for God's grace to overcome that, to soften your heart, and to be aware and joyful about the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you have um, chosen to save people. Lord, none of us deserve it. All of us came in with this, this sinful heart that was just blind, and you're the one who was able to, to redeem us by the blood of Jesus who came to, to purchase our salvation, to apply that to us by the Holy Spirit, and I pray that you'd apply that to more and more people. God, there are people in this room right now, I know there are people in this room that I have looked at as I'm preaching who need to be saved. And Father, I pray that you would remove their heart of stone. I pray that you would give them a heart of flesh, turn the eyes of their hearts to Jesus in his glory, and grant them faith to be saved. Father, I pray that you'd help us who know Jesus to walk in the grace and the mercy of Jesus with soft hearts toward you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.